This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Law School Show. I'm your host, Sabrina, and today our guest is Tom Grosinger. Tom Grosinger is Principal Trust Specialist with RBC Royal Trust and provides ongoing legal and technical analysis for a national team of trust specialists within one of Canada's longest-standing financial institutions, responsible for managing the wealth of some of the country's most prominent individuals, families, and corporations for more than a century. Tom received his law degree from the University of Toronto and was called to the Ontario Bar in 1994. He is certified as a specialist in estates and trust law by the Law Society of Ontario. Prior to joining RBC Royal Trust in 2000, he was an associate lawyer in the Prosperity Planning Group of a national law firm. Tom has contributed articles for continuing legal education programs, in-house publications, and the Estates Trust and Pension Journal, and in 2005 was the recipient of the first Whittefield Award for his article that appeared in the journal entitled Conflict of Laws and Trusts of Movables in Canada, Determining the Applicable Law for Essential Validity and Administration. His article has been cited in a recent judicial case. For several years, Tom was an instructor for the Estate Planning and Administration section of the Ontario Bar Admission Course Program. He has been a guest lecturer at the University of Ottawa, Faculty of Law, and at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University. Tom is a member of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, also known as STEP, being the first chair of STEP's Ottawa chapter and is currently involved in several STEP Canada committees. He and his wife, Carrie Lynn, a CPA, live in Ottawa, and they have two children, Katrina and Derek. Mr. Grosinger, welcome and thank you for speaking with me today. Besides work and law, what are some of your hobbies? Well, firstly, uh, thank you, Sabrina, for the opportunity to be part of the Law School Show. It's great to be able to reach out to an audience interested in hearing about different career paths that law school graduates might pursue. Secondly, as for hobbies, I guess I have a few that I enjoy. One is a collectible card game based on the literary works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Another favorite is actually a tabletop uh, role-playing game that I'm sure some of your uh, audience knows, Dungeons & Dragons. I'm also actually taking lessons in Celtic Harp and recently bought a hobby farm with my wife, so learning about you know, rural living, uh, how to do orchard growing, and actually taking care of a horse as well. Wow, that's awesome. Why did you choose to study law and become a lawyer? Well, if I think back to my younger years, I think I was influenced by, you know, such law shows as L.A. Law, which was, of course, very popular uh, back, in, back in my day. Um, I was also a member of my high school debate team and enjoyed arguing issues, uh, along with researching and presenting those issues in a way that would convince others of the merits of one's position. So I guess in the end of the day, I thought, hey, you know, arguing issues could be a fun way to make a living. So I pursued the law school route after graduating with a degree in political science from uh, McGill University. Awesome. Thank you. Did you always know you wanted to work in estates and trusts law? Not immediately. Um, one of the things that I was interested in was litigation, and I thought that would kind of be uh, my forte. But once I started law school, I realized that a litigator's life was not my cup of tea. And, you know, I really enjoyed the legal research aspect. So the fact that estates and trust law was heavily reliant on jurisprudential analysis 
and because frankly I found the issues in estates and trusts to be very interesting, I quickly realized that that was the area of law that I wanted to pursue. Oh wow, that's great. How did you want to change the legal practice in estates and trust law? <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that I had any concept, at least not initially, of changing estates and trust law. But as I progressed in my career, I, I did begin to do a lot more legal writing, um, focusing on matters that um, there's this concept called conflicts of law. So that was the area that I tended to write uh, more about uh, because there hadn't been that much written in the past. And so I thought, well, that might benefit from a little bit more in-depth analysis. And I suppose you could say that with the articles, I you know, indirectly sought to provide readers with an understanding of the legal issues. Um, that I was describing in the articles and you know as a result helped to develop a common understanding of how some of those issues could be resolved. Could you tell our listeners what an estates and trust attorney does? Okay well let me preface uh, by saying that in my role as principal trust specialist for RBC Royal Trust uh, I don't actually provide legal advice externally but rather I act as in-house counsel uh, for the company. But I did uh, also practice in estates and trust law uh, in, in, in law firms so as an estates and trust lawyer in private practice, I can say that you know they generally get involved in very interesting matters that can span the life cycle of a client. So from assisting clients with their estate planning, and that might be drafting powers of attorney or wills, um, then assisting their estate trustees or executors with regards to administering those documents, um, potentially representing other clients such as the beneficiaries or their estates if, for example, the uh, there's some problem with the documentation um, that was drafted so that you have to go to court in order to argue that out. And then there may also be the situation where uh, the wills or an intervivus trust instrument appoints trustees and the trustees themselves need help in uh, continuing to administer the trust throughout the lifetime of the trust. So estates and trust lawyers um, really get involved in a whole bunch of different areas, uh, including the drafting of the state planning administration documents, researching jurisprudence, providing legal opinions, and again, potentially litigating in court. Like It really is a, quite a fascinating area of the law to practice in. Definitely. Sounds like you get to work in a lot of different areas. You can, yeah. Uh, could you describe a few key qualities to look for when hiring an estates and trust attorney? Okay, um, well, I, I think the qualities would be similar to what most other lawyers you know, what you would look for, um, but perhaps I would say that there's an emphasis on you know, being interested in researching law and dealing with clients face-to-face. -face. Uh, in addition, I think I would say that a good mastery of the written language would be important since sometimes it's literally just one word in a will that could cause a problem and could cause the whole will to have to be litigated in court. That's right. I remember in law school there was this one case about a lawyer in Toronto who, I think it was back in the 50s, he wrote a will about encouraging women to have whoever has the most number of children yes. gets all of my money. Yes, yeah. That was an interesting case. That's it, yeah. That was the uh, Reem Miller estate, I believe. It was. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's funny. What are the most common difficulties you face when managing wealthy clients? Now, again, as I said, because I'm in-house, I typically don't deal directly with the client, but um, I do support a team of trust professionals who in turn have contact with clients who may be, again, the testator, uh, his or her executor, or the beneficiaries of an estate or trust. 
but the issues that I see that arise often have to really do with um, clients' expectations. Mm -hmm. um, generally, those are expectations that are either unreasonable or they're just not really possible to do given the current legal framework. And so this can result, of course, in frustration when their expectations can't be satisfied. So in my view, that difficulty can be mitigated by you know, basically settle, setting out the groundwork for expectations early on and so that you know, there are not going to be any surprises or disappointments down the road. Oh, that makes sense. There are very interesting um, uh, wills that have been described in the court documents, right, in the mm -hmm. jurisprudence. So in fact, one of the ones that you mentioned is one of the ones that is very interesting, that, that whole uh, Miller estate one. Um, where the individual did, you know, basically almost created a contest in effect, right? right? To say like, uh, you know, uh, the award or the residue or whatever would be given to uh, the mother who, you know, since uh, his death and since that period of time expired, it would give uh, a birth to the greatest number of children. Mm -hmm. um, and that was challenged all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada to decide whether or not there was some... Uh, like whether or not that contravened or was against public policy. And in fact, the Supreme Court said, no, it wasn't. They dismissed the appeal, so that clause was okay. Uh, I, there was another one, and actually it was also a public policy one um, back in 1992, and it was from, it was called the Rewishard Estate. And in that particular will, the uh, testator um, actually put a clause in where he directed and declared that the executors were to have his horses shot by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and then buried. So as you can imagine, that caused a huge uproar. Um, I remember when I was reading the case, there was some description about, I think it was from some, uh, you know, little girl who had written to the judge saying, please judge, you know, don't do that. You know, it was obviously had a lot of emotional appeal that went into it. So not surprisingly, in the end, the, uh, the judge said, yeah, no, we're not, not going to do that. That's, mm -hmm. that's, you know, I think against public policy and whatever. Oh, yes. So so there are those types of uh, clauses. And we, you know, we talked about um, how one word may sometimes make a big difference. There was just a very recent case from the Alberta Court of Appeal, which looked at the word home. Hmm. That was the one word to decide whether or not home included all of the personal effects and everything that was inside the home, or did it just, you know, relate to the physical property itself. So again, it's uh, there's lots of them. These are only just some yeah. examples. Thank you for elaborating on those. They're very interesting. What would your legal advice be to young adults? For example, is it necessary for young adults to have a will? Well, let me answer that sort of generally. And, and again, with the proviso that I'm you know, obviously not offering legal advice, mm -hmm. just legal information of a general nature. <laughs> but, um, and, and again, I would I would certainly encourage, you know, listeners and listeners' parents and, you know, relatives to, of course, go and seek uh, legal counsel because it is important in this regard. But, you know, with that in mind, I would say that speaking from an Ontario perspective, and again, subject to a few exceptions, such as being married, mm -hmm. um, you have to be at least 18 years of age to make a will. So that's obviously the kind of threshold there. Um, if you don't, if you don't have a will though, and you pass away, then the government has essentially written one for you, um, in the form of what's known as the statutory intestacy rules. Now, you may not like that because, of course, that doesn't necessarily allow you to direct where you want your uh, asset or estate to go. Um, and what it typically means is that if a person dies with, say, no spouse or no children, but the parents are alive, then it's the parents that uh, are going to inherit. 
Mm. Uh, I mean, in my view, to be prudent, um, or it would be prudent, I guess, for a young adult that has legal capacity to make a will if they have, uh, let's say, significant assets of their own, uh, if they are married, um, or if they have children, or any other combination of the, the foregoing ones. Perfect. Thank you. What does your typical day look like? Well, I usually get in at around 8.30 in the morning, and the day typically begins with the review of emails that have already come in, um, most being updates on legal developments, but there may be issues that get escalated to me from staff because I service um, staff both from the East Coast, so you know, all the way up to Halifax and, and Newfoundland, and then all the way up to the West Coast, um, Victoria, Vancouver. And of course, questions from out west might come in after I've already left for the day. Mm-hmm. The day then usually proceeds with me you know, responding to these estate and trust issues uh, that the field may have escalated to me with respect to administrations or perhaps new business opportunities for the trust company. Could also involve interpretation issues, so assisting with trustee decisions, analyzing risk matters, uh, drafting estate and trust administration documents that usually involve releases, um, consents, or indemnities. And then I often have to engage in legal research to address escalations, and that's something that I do enjoy. Like I, I, I do like the uh, the research aspect of this uh, of this job. Mm-hmm. And then if time permits in a day, I also uh, write articles on estate and trust issues for our internal, I call it an e-zine, so an electronic magazine. It's called Trust Notes, and that's published every other, uh, every other month. And sometimes I'll also write for external publications. And then I've been asked to give presentations from time to time externally at like industry conferences and such. So I try and carve out some time in the day, obviously, to address those. And before you know it, 5 p.m. comes around and I usually try to leave the office around then. So Wow. Yeah. That definitely sounds like a busy day, but not boring. That's it. Yeah, that's very <laughs> true. <laughs> what are the major rewards and challenges you face in your career? Well, beyond the paycheck, of course, which is a reward in itself, I would say that being a trusted partner to many, like both inside the company and outside in resolving estate and trust issues is probably one of the more rewarding aspects uh, of, of this role. Also, I always find, you know, uh, finding that special case that provides the solution to a problem is also very satisfying, as is giving a well-received legal presentation you know, to a room full of uh, what I hope to be interested listeners. And then finally, having your articles published and then getting positive reviews from readers is also very rewarding. With regard to challenges, I guess I would say uh, they probably include like frustration in not being able to find definitive answers to problems and you know, and not having enough time in the day to devote to all the different issues and projects that may come my way. Thank you for sharing. What excites you the most about your work? Probably a toss-up between one of the following three things. So one would be like being quoted in a judicial case, which mm-hmm. happened once in my career so far. Writing articles that get published in external uh, journals, and you know that's happened a few times. And then, to sort of alluded to earlier, it's kind of you know, finding that obscure case that suddenly resolves a problem that's been you know, really causing some concern amongst people. So it, it's one of those three. What are your future next steps and ongoing initiatives in your career? Next steps? Hmm. Retirement, maybe not. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, at this point, I think it's continuing to help RBC Trust build a reputation of excellence in estates and trust, which I see sort of doing through thoughtful analysis and responses to the issues that get escalated to me, publishing these these articles, and, you know, giving presentations at legal conferences externally. Awesome. 
For our listeners who are interested in working in estates and trust law, what advice can you give them when pursuing a career in this domain? Firstly, I would say, you know, explore your options as the field is not just limited to private practice. So, you know, of course, check out the estate and trust departments and law firms, but I would say also consider, for example, working in a trust company like uh, what I do. Uh, secondly, I found over my career that writing articles and giving presentations help not only to deepen your understanding of specific issues in the area, but they also help to build your public profile as a professional who you know others can turn to for guidance. And finally, I think I would strongly encourage anyone interested in becoming an estate and trust practitioner to join the Society of Estates and Trust Practitioners uh, of Canada, so that the acronym is known as STEP. And STEP offers a bunch of educational programs that one can uh, uh, enter into and follow to ultimately achieve what's known as the TEP designation or the Trust and Estates Practitioners designation. And uh, the TEP or the TEP is becoming more and more the designation that uh, employers in the estate and trust field want to see when considering new hires. Okay. Just out of curiosity, why do you feel it's important to build your public profile? I think part of it is, is because in doing that, more and more individuals, sort of externally, whatever, will, will sort of turn to you as the individual who or as the person who might be able to solve their particular problems. And in doing that, uh, number one, of course, it um, uh, increases business opportunities, but it also helps you in getting more questions or, or more challenges that allow you to further build your own skill set and expertise mm -hmm. in the particular area. So it just overall helps to improve uh, matters on a whole bunch of different fronts, actually. Right. And improves you as a lawyer. That, that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Or one hopes so. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any valuable life lessons you would like to share with the listeners that you learned in law school or shortly afterwards in your legal career? Well, I think two lessons come to mind. Um, first is pursue that area of the law that interests you the most, like regardless of whether it is the, you know, quote unquote, infield or the one that might hire the most or pay the best. Uh, it seems to me that, you know, by being interested in what you do, it is easier to become well-versed in the many issues that make up your chosen field and this helps to establish yourself you know the go-to person right for solutions mm -hmm. and I think second to start building your uh, profile early in your career and you know establish yourself as someone who is knowledgeable in the area of the law that you're going to choose to pursue and again this going to be estates and trusts it can be any area and again in doing that as I think I've sort of mentioned earlier this can take many forms including like writing articles for professional journals speaking at industry or law society conferences teaching seminars even um, or contributing uh, to textbooks perfect thank you it's been a pleasure speaking with you I've learned so much about estates and trust law and I wish you continued success in your many roles and future endeavors also, thank you for your time, and thank you for speaking with me and sharing your thoughts and experiences with us. Well, thank you very much, Sabrina. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.